Welcome back. I'm Kernan Mannion. You're listening to Physician Interrupted. And this is part 2B of the series on the matrix of clinician distress. We decided earlier that uh, the uh, second part of the article was rather lengthy and it made sense to split up the podcast. So we've already spoken about burnout and compassion fatigue, and now we're going to be going into the concept of moral injury. Imagine being betrayed by a friend, for example, by that friend's having hurtfully revealed a shared confidence, or by their abandoning your relationship without warning and then even bad-mouthing you. You're likely to experience many feelings all at once. Hurt, anger, sadness. Most of us have experienced some sort of betrayal at some point in our personal lives and have felt its intense emotional impact. What is moral injury? At its core, it's an occurrence of a hurtful act rooted in a betrayal of some sort. Dr. Jonathan Shea extensively studied this phenomenon in Vietnam veterans grappling with their war experience. Initially, he presumed it was part of PTSD, but eventually concluded that what he was seeing was really a separate phenomenon and perhaps one that was even more destructive than PTSD. Here's Shea's description. He says, moral injury is present when there has been a betrayal of what's right by someone who holds legitimate authority in a high-stakes situation. Now, he went on later to modify that description to include the concept that one could betray oneself, one could betray one's higher ideal. And we'll come back to that in a moment. But he says, failure of leadership in addressing the injustice or worse, complicity of leadership in causing the betrayal, what he refers to as leadership malpractice, has profound effects. It destroys the capacity for social trust in that person's mental and social worlds. She regards this as a kind of wound contamination in the mind itself, preventing healing and leaking toxins. He says that when the capacity for trust is destroyed, its place is filled by the active expectancy by that person of harm, exploitation, or humiliation. And needless to say, living in that state of mind is counter to and even obstructive of well-being. Let me again state that he said that failure of leadership in addressing the injustice or worse, their complicity in causing the betrayal 
and he referred to that as malpractice. Leadership malpractice has profound effects. It destroys the capacity for social trust in your own mental and social worlds. Now, needless to say, living in that state of mind is counter to and even obstructive of your own well-being. Moral injury can occur when someone, generally in a position of authority or influence, betrays us, and it has hurtful consequences. We can also be betrayed by entire institutions, for example, by being fired abruptly, unfairly, in a humiliating way, or not being supported in the truth-speaking stance that you've taken, or not being treated fairly by the justice system. Shea, as I said, later went on to expand the syndrome definition to include betrayal by oneself of one's higher moral values. No matter its source, moral injury is never emotionally neutral it is invariably involved with intense negative emotions. It rouses them and usually manifesting some combination of hurt, anger, sadness, and shame. Where does moral injury fit in the overall clinician distress matrix? Increasingly, Moral injury is being experienced by clinicians in the setting of their caregiving work. And thus, moral injury and burnout can go hand in hand, one intensifying the detrimental impact of the other. When moral injury occurs in the context of burnout, it intensifies the diminished self-efficacy component of the burnout criteria. It's vital that coaches and therapists draw out this aspect of the client's presentation, this sense of betrayal, simply dismissing it as part of the overall burnout picture is really inadequate. It deprives the opportunity for the doc or the nurse to be able to articulate that sense of letdown and betrayal. And what happens is the client inevitably stays stuck as this important dynamic remains unresolved. It's something that has not yet been spoken or articulated. They're saying, I have failed myself or I've been betrayed by another person and I've been harmed by the betrayal either of myself or by someone else. It's my saying, I feel ineffective, even worthless, because I failed my higher self, or because my ideal self has been assaulted by another person in authority, and my ideal self has really been harmed, made inaccessible to me. And when I feel that I and what I stand for, my higher values, have been betrayed, or worse, assaulted, by those who are above me in a position of authority. 
And those actions have compromised my ideal self. Or where I myself am put in a situation where I'm forced to act against my own higher values. Or perhaps even where I myself have knowingly acted in violation of my own higher values. Then I may experience that syndrome that we now refer to as moral injury. In many ways, such a self-failure results in a disconnection from one's core self. Just like compassion fatigue, that disconnection itself results in a fundamental misalignment with our own operational schema our framework, our understanding of who we are as persons. And it results in a state of pain. And of course, that pain blends with the existing dysphoria present in any other concurrent distress syndrome or aspect of our lives. In a broad sense, independent of burnout, moral injury exists in its own realm, that of one's perspective, one's schema of oneself, who you really are and what you stand for. And again, it's important to emphasize that moral injury's response cascade with its internal dialogue, its complex emotions and behavioral responses can operate entirely separately from one's burnout, whether you have burnout or not. And so in many ways, the moral injury or moral assault exists as its own separate stress event, resulting in its own stress response cascade. As Shea has emphatically argued, Moral injury is perhaps even more profound in its detrimental psychological impact than PTSD. It changes character. Moral injury can cause virtually irreparable alterations in one's own core character, that is, their personality configuration, in their schema, their, their plan, their map of themselves in the world in their very way of being in the world. One retreats from the world as a result of such an experience, much in the same way that a wounded animal retreats from view to the shaded bushes so as to protect itself. What's the impact of moral injury? Those who have experienced moral injury, major, major moral injury, often become overwhelmed with cynicism and bitterness or in the case of betrayal of one's own moral code, one's higher self, one experiences shame and recrimination, self-recrimination. People who've experienced moral injury tend to isolate themselves from others and progressively retreat from the ordinary communal world. In many ways, the residual symptoms of moral injury look remarkably similar to chronic depression. But chronic depression is not rooted in betrayal. 
Another impact is that one experiences a profound demoralization and thus a cynicism. There's a retreat from investment and full engagement with one's work and thus diminished investment in patient care and team collaboration. Who's at risk for burnout? compassion fatigue, and moral injury. Every committed, compassionate, altruistic person who pursues people work, whether it's direct patient care or larger humanitarian endeavors working for the greater good of mankind, such as in social justice, education of the underprivileged, peace work, law enforcement, and social work, just to name a few. Each is at risk of each of these syndromes, burnout, compassion fatigue, and moral injury, occurring individually or in combination, simply by nature of the immensity of the work. One of the key challenges is to help these highly motivated people understand the nearly inevitable dysphoria, the depression, the letdown that results when we don't meet our objectives or have become so depleted that we've lost our compassion or our investment in the work. How do people customarily deal with that demoralization, that delusion? In my experience, except in the case of externally caused distress where the appropriate emotion is anger, most of us are prone toward self-blame. I failed they say. And further, not only did I fail, look at me, I'm a mess. What kind of a helper am I? So here, compounding the self-sabotage, we see an intensification of the self-devaluation that leads to a sense of worthlessness and generates into shame and self-loathing that experiential state inevitably, inevitably, recruits from our memory of past experiences and then pulls out any other such experiences of shame and builds on those earlier experiences. And in reactivating those past experiences with their inevitably attendant hurt and anger and shame, It only serves to re-enliven those experiences as though they were concurrently occurring again. And bringing that emotional complex into the psychic stew blurs uh, the, the clear demarcation between present and past. And so what we have here is that in addition to the current distress, the past distress is re enlivened and re-experienced as though currently occurring. And this reactivation of the memories of prior trauma experience is generally true of all psychological trauma. The key concept bears repeating here that these are separate phenomena that often coexist, but they are not interchangeable as the same 
discrete phenomena. Now, it's also important to stress again, compassion fatigue can occur independently from burnout and from moral injury. Likewise, moral injury can occur independently from burnout or compassion fatigue. And likewise, burnout can occur with neither compassion fatigue nor moral injury being present. And what makes it confusing for so many is that we often see both compassion fatigue and moral injury in the context of a clinician's burnout. And it is difficult for us to tease apart. And as that is the case, can you imagine how difficult it is for that clinician who does not understand these syndromes to be able to name them and tease them apart? So let's recall that when concurrently occurring in any combination, compassion fatigue and burnout, moral injury, and also stemming from events in the same arena of our work life. Sometimes, albeit even in vague reciprocal cause and effect ways that we can't even yet quite identify, the combined effect of these phenomena, these syndromes, is exponentially more intense. And it can be very, very challenging to disentangle. This is especially true if all three are present in the clinical arena within a clinician at the same time. But again, let me stress, distinguishing amongst them is critical to successfully addressing them. Now, reflecting back to that clinician distress syndrome, that scenario that I highlighted early in this series in part one, that where I said that, you know, it had elements of all three. Let's ask here, what component of that distress is burnout? Well, if one has exhaustion, stress-induced detachment, and a reduced, in uh, a progressive sense of futility, and diminished effectiveness in one's role, burnout is most likely present. What component of this distress is compassion fatigue? Well, it's hard to feel compassionate when you're furious, exhausted, and afraid. In fact, when you're emotionally shutting down, it's hard to feel anything. But compassion fatigue could exist entirely independently of the presence or absence of burnout. What component of this distress is moral injury? Well, thinking here of the vaccine and the social protection protocol, here I am as a caregiver, and I'm feeling that after all I've done, it feels like I've been betrayed by the people I've so willingly served. I'm having to put myself at risk. Betrayed also perhaps by a state government or a socio-political movement that has perhaps even incentivized this kind of defiance. And perhaps even betrayed by my own healthcare institution that doesn't want to hear my voice, 
doesn't really appreciate the complexity of what I feel, nor apparently particularly care, and simply wants me to keep working. This sense of betrayal of a common set of shared values leads to immense moral injury. The necessity and challenge of careful deconstruction of the distress matrix. Too often, psychotherapists, who are, after all, psychological clinicians and coaches, are quick to arrive at the syndrome naming phase and then just simply call it a day, as if simply giving the phenomenon a label should magically make the distress disappear. It doesn't. Now, of course, correctly naming a phenomenon or identifying such as a syndrome has inherent therapeutic benefit. But that's just the beginning of the work of teasing this apart. Simply making the general diagnosis and assuming, uh, assigning a diagnostic label, for example, you're burned out, or you've got compassion fatigue, or you're experiencing moral injury, is ultimately unproductive, if not counterproductive. Now, these may be entirely valid observations that the client is really burned out and has compassion fatigue and is experiencing moral injury. But really, all they are are labels. They're only terms, descriptions of the lived phenomena, which can be crippling in their intensity. They're damaging because if you simply leave it there and don't give that person the means to make sense of their experience, including their uniquely composed distress syndrome and the weightiness of all of that that they carry. And if you don't help them develop effective remedies, then they remain awash, drowning in their distress. We'll pause there for part 2C, in which we're going to cover some of the approaches that might be considered. Be sure to stay tuned. <laughs>